Turn to the Word of God tonight to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you could find that, please, and hold your place. Uh, we'll come to that in a few moments. I, th I think possibly this is the last part of this uh, short series on Satan or adversary. I say I think because there's something else that's, that's in my mind and between now and next Sunday, I'll let her come to fruition or it won't. Uh, I'll let you know then. Uh, but tonight we have come to the stage where we're going to focus our thoughts on the conquering of Satan. We, we began this this morning, it's in two parts, the conquering of Satan. And we saw that it's twofold, it's through Christ and it's through the church. And we saw that how Satan was defeated, Christ accomplished this by the perfection of his life, by the propitiation of his death, and by the power of his resurrection. And so tonight we want to then look at the other aspect of that, and that is the church. Now, Christ's death and resurrection was substitutionary. As we said this morning, it was in our place. He died for our sins. He rose again for our justification. All power was given unto him in heaven and on earth. And Peter, writing about this in 1 Peter 3.22, said regarding Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. However, since Christ's ascension and his glorification at the right hand of the Father, he has delegated his authority to his church on earth. And we see this here if we begin reading in Ephesians 1, reading from verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Among whom also we were once, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ, 
by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did you notice that? He made us alive together. He has raised us up together. And he has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has delegated his power and his position unto us on earth. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Glory to God. And so we see here we have a position in Christ. Now, the church defeats Satan through three ways, through our position in Christ through our responsibility in Christ, and through our authority in Christ. And that's really what I want to share with you tonight. Our position in Christ. As a church, we're the called of God. We are the elect of God. We're the adopted family of God. We're heirs, and we're joint heirs with Christ. We are blood-bought, blood-washed sons and daughters of Almighty God. We are Christ's bride. We're the body of Christ on earth. He is the vine. We are the branches. We are living stones. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the Savior. We are the saints. We are seated in heavenly places. And through Christ we find peace with God, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, love, hope, Faith, assurance, confidence, power in Christ. We are more than conquerors. We're overcomers and ambassadors. The greater one lives inside us. The stronger one is by our side. We're the new creation. We're partakers of the divine nature. All of that and much, much more is our position in Christ. Now, how in the world can we lose this battle whenever that's our position in Christ? And sometimes we need to read it, we need to see it, we need to think about it, we need to speak it, we need to pray it, we need to sing it until it gets into our thick heads and then beyond that into our hearts. Because sometimes we're a wee bit dull of hearing, aren't we? I know I am. Sometimes I need to hear a thing many, many times before it really gets into my heart. And so that's why I often read these things to try to get the sense of it and realize who I am in Christ. Thank God we have got a position in Christ tonight. Thank God we are seated in heavenly places in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the right hand of the Father and spiritually speaking by the power of God's Holy Spirit, we're right there seated in heavenly places in Christ. We're talking tonight about the conquering of Satan through Christ and through His church. Then there is our responsibility in Christ. Now here's a scripture that's come up again and again in this series. Ephesians 4.27 Give no place to the devil. Give no ground. 
Don't give a foothold, not a toehold to the devil. How can we do that? How can we give or how do we give ground to the devil, to the evil one? Well, different ways. Let's have a little look at this in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Look what it says. I beseech you there, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world. And do not be, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This world is trying to conform us. From the moment we are born, we receive all kinds of information and ideas and theories and principles. And much of it is from a world's perspective. And if we're not careful, we get conformed to the way this world thinks. We begin to think the way the world thinks. And that's what the devil wants us to do. So we have to renew our minds. How do we renew our minds? By the Word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And as we read the Word of God, our mind becomes refreshed. It becomes renewed. We see what God says. And we say, that's what the Word says. That's what God says. In Colossians chapter 2. Well, let me read from verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. For as, for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And you therefore, having received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you, through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. See the warning there. Lest anyone deceive you. Lest we get sucked into believing the way this world believes. Paul's warning, and if it was like that in his day, how much more in our day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It would help greatly if I was at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Here we are. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. The world through its own wisdom did not know God, that means. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For see, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence and on it goes give no place to the devil by unbelief by wrong thinking and then it says to resist the devil James 4 and 7 says resist the devil it says actually submit yourselves therefore unto God then resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now that's not an image we think about very often, is it? The devil actually fleeing as hard as he can go from us if we resist him. Now the word that Paul uses for resist is a very strong word. It means to strongly oppose. If necessary, to stand toe-to-toe face to face and stand your ground and do not budge and do not move. Something's got to move. Let's not let it be us. Let it be him rather than us. And if we resist him, if we submit ourselves unto God, surrender our lives unto the Lord and say, Lord, I need your strength, I need your help, I need your grace. And Lord, I'm going to stand until the devil flees in this situation. This is what James was saying, to resist the devil and he will flee from you. First Peter 5, 8 and 9 talks about the devil going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. So we can resist him, can't we? And if we can resist him, then he will flee from us. And if we submit ourselves unto God and we stand steadfast in the faith, then he will have to go. He's not going to spend all of his time on us if we're going to be resisting. He's going to look for an easier target. You know, when you see those wildlife programs on television 
and you see those lions or those tigers or whatever, those beasts, you see them circling the herd. And they're looking for the weakest ones. They're looking for the ones on the edge. The ones who's falling behind. The weakest ones. Those are the ones he goes for. He doesn't go for the big ones. And if you see sometimes those wildebeest, particularly they're quite ferocious, those things, and how often they turn against those lions and attack them and resist them. And sometimes you'll see the lions as the ones who's fleeing. And Peter says, he goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, well, you know it, verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So what's our responsibility in Christ to defeat the enemy? To give no place to the devil and to resist the devil. And to keep ourselves in the love of God. And that little book of Jude just before Revelation. It's got that lovely verse. Verse 21. Let me read verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up. On your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Excuse me. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the environment. That's the place where God would have us be. That's where we mature. That's where we grow. Uh, that's where we learn. That's where we're safe, keeping ourselves in the love of God. The Apostle John was the, the apostle of love, was he not? And all throughout his life, he taught on love. And towards the end of his life, he's a very, very old man now. And he writes his uh, three little epistles as well as the book of Revelation. And in his first epistle in the fourth chapter, he's writing here. And uh, I want you to turn with me, please, to that. I'm going to read this here from the, uh, I think this is the Living Bible. The, the, uh, the, new, the New Living Translation I'm going to read this from. And uh, it's First John 4. In verse 16 and onwards, For we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in Him. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face Him with confidence because we are like Christ here in this world. Such love has no fear, 
But perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is not for fear of judgment. Sorry, if we are afraid, it is for fear of judgment. And this shows that his love has not been perfected in us. We love each other as a result of his loving us first. So John's here writing about the love of God and knowing the love of God, experience the love of God, and living in the love of God, and realizing how much God loves us. That's good for us to think about how much we love Him. But He loved us before we ever loved Him. And no matter how strong our love is for Him, His love will be a million times stronger for us than our love will ever be for Him. So that is the environment, that is what we need to focus on, His great love for us. And it casts out all fear of judgment and everything. Because we know God loves us. You know, the devil won't come along and make you doubt that, that God loves you. That He really, really loves you. So we have to believe, we have to convince Him, we have to read the Scriptures and see how much God loves us. Of course, we can negate that. Listen to this. If someone says, I love God, but hates another Christian, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we have not seen? And God himself has commanded that we must love not only him, but our Christian brothers and sisters too. Whenever we're told to keep ourselves in the love of God, this is part of keeping ourselves in the love of God, is to make sure that not only do we love God, He loves us, but not only do we love Him, but we love our brothers and our sisters. Because if we hate somebody, and it's most especially a Christian brother or sister, if we hate them, where's the love of God in us? Hmm? I know people. I have had people tell me, I hate him. And I says, but that's your brother in Christ. It doesn't matter. I hate them. <laughs> Can you believe that? I says, but the Bible says, when you hate somebody, you're still in your sins. Do you realize that there is absolutely no forgiveness for you if you hate somebody? That's how dangerous it is. And once we do that, we're not living in the love of God. So it's important that we understand these things. In chapter 5 of 1 John, let me just read a couple of verses here. Again, I'll read it in this New Living Translation. Verse 18. We know that those who have become part of God's family do not make a practice of sinning. For God's Son holds them securely and the evil one cannot get his hands on them. We know that we are the children of God and that the world around us is under the power and control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we are in God because we are in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and He is eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in our hearts. Now notice that first little bit. We know that we have become part of God's family we know that we who have become part of God's family do not make a practice of sinning. Now, as long as we live on this earth, we're going to be imperfect and we are going to sin. But this is talking about making a practice of it. This is talking about deliberately choosing to live a sinful lifestyle. 
Not that you fail once in a while. Not that you sin from time to time. But that you're choosing maybe even a particular sin to continually live in it. He says, we're God's sons and we're God's daughters. He says, no. That's not our lifestyle. That's not keeping ourselves in the love of God at all. And so it's important that we give no place to the devil, that we keep ourselves in the love of God. It's important also that we guard our hearts with all diligence. Huh. Proverbs 4.23, For out of it flow the issues of life. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's where the issues lie, isn't it? Well, eventually it comes up out of our lips, but the issue is in the heart, isn't it? So we've got to guard our hearts with all diligence. That's what the Scriptures say. And so we need to be very, very careful. Philippians chapter 4, and you know this well enough. Look at verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Anxiety and worry and over-carefulness to the point where we're stressed and strained and really, really, really worried. It affects our heart. It affects our spirit. And so this is why the Bible says that we're to be careful about that. In John chapter 7. Verse 37, on that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But now that he is glorified, the Holy Spirit has been given. And all of us tonight who know and love Christ have got God's Holy Spirit within us. And because of that, he says, out of your belly, out of your innermost belly, out of your heart shall flow rivers of living water. And the thing is, we need to be careful that we don't block that flow that we don't contaminate that flow of living water. So we've got to keep the flow clean, haven't we? So we're to guard our hearts with all diligence. And so we have our position in Christ, our responsibility in Christ, and our authority in Christ. Satan's power to deceive is on the grounds of ignorance. My people perish for the lack of knowledge. This stops you from being ignorant of his devices. This is a drum I have been beating for 33 years. And as long as I have breath in my body, I'll continue to beat it. Get to know the word of God. This is what Jesus used 
These are the, this is the very weapon he used. And if he used that in the place of temptation, three times he used it. If he used it, what have we got to use? We can use it too, can we not? And so, this is our authority in Christ. The name of Jesus gives us great authority. After Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, after the early church was commissioned and filled with the Holy Spirit, they went out everywhere and the name of Jesus was their watchword, wasn't it? It was their battle cry. They preached in the name of Jesus. If you read Peter's first sermon, we talked about it this morning, if you read that in Acts and see what he says about Jesus. And if you read through those first few chapters and see the mighty things that they did in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus' name is a powerful thing. Now it's not some kind of a hocus-pocus talisman. It's not an abracadabra thing. His name represents his person. Bible names are synonymous with character and with nature. And what a precious and lovely name is the name of Jesus. No wonder Satan wants to make it a swear word. No wonder he wants to use it as something that's foul. Something so precious and so wonderful is the name of Jesus. What a name. After 2,000 years... It's still a powerful, powerful name, isn't it? I mean, it so just moves people either towards or against, either for or against. There's no middle ground. It's a wonderful name. And so it denotes his person. It denotes his presence. Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst. I think that the Amplified that Clifford reads says there, I, I am in the midst. I am is one of the great names of God, is it not? Now even though actually in the context that was talking about discipline within the church when they would meet. But it still holds true. If there's just a few of us and we deliberately, consciously meet in His name, He will be by His Spirit in our midst. That's the promise of God's Word. But are we conscious of that? Most times we're not even conscious of that. I'm, most times I'm not conscious of it. We come to church, we sing, we praise, we preach, we do all those things. And are we conscious that because we have deliberately met in His name, that He's actually in our midst by His Spirit? Probably if we're more conscious of it, they'll probably sense more of his spirit. His name denotes his power. Now you should know by now, I've mentioned it many times, but it's worth repeating, isn't it? The two most popular words for power in the New Testament is exousia and dunamis. Exousia and dunamis. John 1 and 12 to as many as received him, to them give he power, exousia, which means delegated authority. Christ delegated his authority that we could call ourselves his sons and his daughters. 
We have a legal right to do that. Heaven has given us the legal right to call ourselves God's sons and God's daughters. That's what exousia is. It's a legal right. It's a delegated authority. It's the right to become the sons of God even to them that believe on His name. And then, of course, Acts 1 and 8. But you shall receive power. There's that word again, only it's dunamis. You shall receive power. And that's where we get dynamo, dynamic, and dynamite. That's where we get those words from. Dunamis. You shall receive dunamis. That is your might. Exousia is your right. Dynamis is your might. And God has given us both right and might. Aren't you glad for that? Policeman steps out as I was driving home the early hours of last Sunday morning. I'd left a little friend off in hospital. It was about half one or two I was driving home. And lo and behold, the police was up that Lurgan Road stopping traffic. They were after somebody that night. And so they stopped me. Put up the hand and I stopped. Where are you going, sir? I just live around in Dainsford. That's all right. Good night. Away you go. As simple as that. But I noticed he had a big gun strapped to his side. The hand gone up. He had the right to stop me. If I hadn't have stopped, he got the might to stop me. He had both right and might on his side. And God gives us both right and might against the enemy. We've got weapons, and they're not weapons that are carnal, because the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly carnal weapons, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? Look at Luke chapter 10, just for a wee second. Verse 17. Remember Jesus sent the 70 out. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority, the exousia, the trample on serpents and scorpions, and over all the dunamis of the enemy. You see, he has a certain amount of power too. As a creature, he has got a lot of power as a creature. Compared to us as physical beings, he has much more power than we have got. So he has dynamis too. But we have the authority over his power. And we also have dynamis as well. So he says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by in any means hurt you. And then he says, So that you don't make a big deal of it, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And so his name denotes his person, his presence, his power, and his purposes. 1 John 3, 8, For this purpose 
was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That he might loosen, that he might undo, that he might dissolve, that's what it means, the works of the devil, the bonds of Satan. Remember Jesus healed a little woman, 18 years she had bound over Lo, whom Satan has bound these 18 years with that spirit of infirmity. He'd come to listen, to undo, to dissolve the works of the evil one. In Matthew chapter 12, and we're just about to finish in a second or two. Verse 22, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Note this. Oh, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? The strong man is Satan, isn't he? But the stronger man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what power and what strength there is in his name. No wonder those early disciples freely went about using his name. Now we know that <laughs> this was shortly after <laughs> the death of Christ on the cross, how he was despised by the religious quarter, how that name was despised and how he was spat upon and so forth. And so they wanted to make sure they knew that this same Jesus, whom you crucified, Peter says, God is glorified. And this same Jesus, and through faith in his name, the one that you crucified, it's through faith in his name that has made this man whole. And so they continually, continually, continually used the name of Jesus and used the authority that was in that wonderful name. There's something about his name. Uh, a few years ago, a pastor friend of mine, we were sitting in a, a little coffee shop. It used to be the old schoolhouse up the Lurgan Road. It's now where St. Saviour's Church actually is built. It used to be an old schoolhouse. 
And we were sitting there, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. It was a Monday morning. We were the only people in the place, and we had just sat down just to... He was drinking coffee, I was drinking milk. And uh, we just started just to chat about the things of God. And, and suddenly the door opened, and this man walked in, and he was dressed as if he'd just walked off a building site. He had builder's clothes on, and he was dirty, and looked as if he just walked off on Friday at four o'clock of a builder's site. And he was drunk, quite drunk. And he walked up to the counter and he ordered a bottle of HP sauce. Never forget it. Why in the world he wanted the HP sauce at that time of morning? I have no idea. But he did. Now he looked over at us. We were sitting probably from here to that wall. So we were a fair bit away. He had no idea who we were. He didn't even hear us speaking. And I was sitting back to him. And my friend was sitting looking over my shoulder. And he says, uh-oh. He's heading our way. So he come over. The first thing he says, are you preachers? <laughs> I wonder how he knew that. Because we were just very casually dressed. Didn't even hear us speak. Didn't know us from Adam. Something else knew us. And so, what do you do in those situations? So it just come out of me like that. I said, sir, do you know Jesus? And as soon as I mentioned that name, his whole face changed. And a scowl come over his face. And he put his fist into a ball. And he put it like that right up to my nose. And I smelt the cigarettes and the booze of his hand. That's how close it was to my nose. So what do you do now? <laughs> Whoever blinks first is lost. <laughs> and I looked at him and he was angry. And I said, sir, do you know that Jesus loves you? And when I said that, as quickly as that, his whole expression changed and he started to cry. And he wept, big sobbing, racking, weeping. His shoulders were going up and down and he dropped his hands. i never forget, and he started to back out like this, backwards, out through the door. I never come back. But the name of Jesus had two effects in that man. One made him angry, and one made him weep. There was something in or around that man that was affected by the name of Jesus. Never did see him again. Say, why did you not go out after him? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I should have. Never thought even about it at the time. And I wasn't afraid. It wasn't because I was afraid of the man. Because when he left, he was crying. Maybe he was a backslider. Who knows? But the name of Jesus had an effect on him. And whenever we speak the name of Jesus and we understand who we're speaking about and why we're speaking that name, it has a fact in the heavenlies. It has an effect in the spirit world. Beyond our sight. And so it's a powerful, powerful name, isn't it? And Satan has been conquered, defeated forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Stand.
Lord, we stop and we just give you thanks for your tremendous victory on Calvary. We thank you for the precious blood that was shed. We thank you for the utter defeat of hell and the devil and all of his hosts. And one day, every single one of them will have to bow the knee and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even Satan himself will bow the knee. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are tonight. We thank you that you're powerful, that you're mighty, that you're seated at the right hand of the Father, that all power and all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto you. And we bless you for the privileged position that we hold tonight, that you have delegated that to us on earth. So we give you thanks tonight, and we bless you for who you are. Now, Lord, send us out of here tonight encouraged and strengthened and believing and trusting that in your name there is power and in your name there is might. And we will glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.